Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. I encourage you to join me in John chapter 19. John 19 is where we'll be this morning. And uh, we're going to not quite finish John 19, but we're going to get toward the, the death of our Lord Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. And so John 19, we're going to begin in verse 19 or 18, and then we're going to read through verse 30. So John 19, beginning in verse 18, we're going to take this all the way to verse uh, 30 this morning. Also, if you have a bulletin in your hand, I encourage you to take those out. That'll aid us this morning as we look at um, uh, this text to help us to kind of walk through some notes that can, can encourage us hopefully this morning. And your title will be, as we'll walk through here, The Glory in the Crucifixion. Now, that may, uh, you may have to, when you think just about that term in and of itself, go, well, how is there glory in crucifixions? And so, hopefully, with a Christian perspective, you would know all that was taking place, even much of what we've sang this morning by the shedding of the blood of Jesus. It was the atonement for any and all who would repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus, and therefore, our sins have been wiped away. And so the very righteousness of Christ is now what God sees in us when we have turned from our sin and placed our faith and trust in Jesus. We are trusting Christ uh, for uh, his finished work, for that atonement for us on the cross. And then our sin was what kept him there. Our sin is what nailed him to that cross while he was there, uh, was making payment uh, for sin. So you see ultimately God's grace and his love and his mercy and God's holiness and his wrath and his justice being poured out at the same time at the crucifixion. So there's that, right? And all of us would probably say a hearty amen that that's what the crucifixion, and there's glory in that. But we're not going to cover that, per se, this morning. We're going to let the text kind of speak for itself. And it's, I'm helpful, I'm, and I'm hopeful, uh, and I'm grateful, and uh, helpful that this is in Scripture, that we can begin to see even more amazing how our great God is, that song, and with the how great our art, how great thou art, um, uh, uh, made together as a medley was extremely helpful. Just because that's exactly what this passage wants us to see. And I think what the gospel writer, the gospel of John, is intended for that we would ultimately know God. And if you remember, we haven't kind of mentioned this recently, uh, but the purpose of the book in, in chapter twenty, verse thirty and thirty-one, uh, says this: Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, here's your purposeful clause, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's the purpose of the entire book, that we would uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and by believing in him that we may have life and life in his name. And so we look at that this morning. This is the purpose. How do we see glory then in these this activity, this event, and he's going to help us walk through, uh, he being the, uh, the gospel writer, John the Beloved, is going to help us to see this a little different than the other uh, authors or the other synoptic writers of the gospels, that, that in this, 
Uh, many are maybe a little more graphic in the things that were taking place, or paying more attention to those who were sneering at Jesus, who were scoffing at Jesus, who were taunting Jesus. And not much of that's included in this account. The purpose here is Jesus Christ on display. And for us, not just to see the byproduct of the cross, but the very essence of Jesus on the cross at that moment, there's glory in that. And you think, well, okay, let's, let's navigate to that. So, all right, let's do this together. John 19, beginning in verse 18, we see that they, they, there, which would be Golgotha, in the Aramaic, it's called Golgotha, it's called the place of the skull. There they crucified him, him being Jesus, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but, let's, but cast lots for it, see whose it, whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it out, held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the cross. This merciless, evil atrocity full of pain and hatred and animosity, ill-intended, premeditated murder. And yet, Lord, it is full of glory. Father, I pray you would help us to see that this morning. Help us to see that there on display is the very glory of our great God. And that, Lord, this is not the end. But, Lord, it is the beginning of salvation for all who repent and believe. It is entrance into the kingdom for those who turn from sin, place their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on this cross. And so, Lord, I pray you would help us to see this morning the great glory that is the crucifixion of our Savior. And yes, Lord, in that mingled all throughout is all the pain and all the suffering, the very wrath that Christ experienced, your wrath being poured out on him for us. And yes, physical pain of suffering death on a cross. 
But Lord, I pray that we would put that in perspective to a much greater thing, and that's the very glory of Christ. And all that was being accomplished there at that moment. Help us to see that. And in that, Lord, I pray you would give us confidence, a holy fear, and a loving desire to obey the commands of Scripture as we desire to know you all the more and love you all the more through what we study and learn today. So give us ears to hear. Open the eyes of our heart. Enlighten us, Lord, that we may know what is the riches of our inheritance, a great and immeasurable power that you've bestowed upon us. And so, Lord, we ask for that this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we see it in these verses, verses 18 through 30, is the glory in the crucifixion. And we're going to see kind of uh, five or six major points here to kind of just walk through uh, this morning, five, uh, that will help us, that will aid us. And so if you're walking through your notes, there's some probably on the back of your notes as well. And you think, well, I don't have that. We'll flip it over. You'll, you'll see that as we're filling the blanks together. Uh, but there's some major principles here that I want us to be able to see. And they just kind of flow really, really uh, clearly out of the text that can help us. And so the first thing in helping us see the glory in the crucifixion itself and the very act of crucifixion is the fulfillment of Scripture. Is the very fulfillment of Scripture. Scripture is being fulfilled as we walk through this. And this is from verse 18 throughout. And prior to and after this text, I mean, even next week, we could have just kept on in the sermon. We could have been extremely long because uh, you just continually see Scripture's fulfillment and a variety of things that take place as it's hearkening back. I mean, even in verse 36 that we're not going to cover today, um, it's, it's talking about his side being pierced and his, none of his legs are being broken. And so verse 36, it says this, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him uh, whom they have pierced. Coming out of Psalm chapter 22. And so again and again, we could go through all the gospel accounts and walk through all the variety of ways that scriptures are filled because it is full, it's replete with examples for us. But we're going to try to just stay in the context of our passage today and, and uh, I'll we'll be uh, uh, honest and advertising that this is where we're going to be this morning. But verses 18 to 30, where do we see scriptures fulfillment in verses um, 18 to 30? Well, in verse 18, we can start there. It says, there they crucified him. And now in this, it's, you, you were going to see direct quotations of Old Testament Scripture being fulfilled, and you're going to see typologies being fulfilled. There's, there's foreshadowings prior to the crucifixion of Christ that we are supposed to pick up on, right? That this is supposed to happen. Even as you get to the book of Hebrews and t- looks at the temple and the temple layout, and ultimately it was a type, it was a pattern of the heavenly temple. It was a, a pattern of the heavenlies and what was taking place there that the temple on earth was to be patterned from. And so as a result of this, this is... What you're seeing, various types and shadows of, of the things that were come. If you remember Jesus' own teaching, what's one of the things he told them? That as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, so the Son of Man must be in the earth, right? And so you're going to begin to see that even where we're heading is going to be a typology. It's going to be fulfilled in the life of Christ. And so ultimately here you're going to see they crucified him. And we've alluded to this numerous times already where Jesus is, is said in John 3 and John 8 and John 12 that he is to be lifted up. And so crucifixion was that very means. They were put on a wooden cross and they were lifted up. Whereas we talked about before, uh, Israelites and the Jews would stone someone. So in stoning, they would throw them down and then heap stones upon them, beating them to death with stones, gashing them and striking them with stones. And so 
They would be thrown down. And so Jesus is fulfilling this, as he said in John chapter 3, the Son of Man must be lifted up. In what manner? Where's the typology? As the serpent was lifted, the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, remember? And so if you remember back to Numbers chapter 21, where God has sent a curse on the people and the children of Israel for their rebellion, and that curse, he sent venomous snakes and so vipers to be able to bite them, and so he would bite them, and upon biting them, they would die unless there was a cure. And so the instruction were the people began to come as a result of knowing their sin and as a result of acknowledging their sin and begin to cry out for mercy. And, and Moses intercedes on their behalf, and God speaks to Moses and says, Make a bronze serpent and then mount it so that when people would look at it by faith in the, in the cure, which was to by faith trusting in God, and God's cure was to trust him by looking at some pole with a snake on it. Now, that seems ridiculous. They'd be able to think, I have been bitten by a literal snake with literal venom that's literally killing me, and I'm supposed to look at a figurative pole, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be healed. Well, that's faith, ladies and gentlemen. Believing, as Pastor Tim walked us through, believing what God's Word says. Trusting the Word of God, even though it may not make sense in our present day. Even though it may not completely uh, jive with the things that take place, because our God is bigger than us. He is supernatural. And so we trust, in a very natural sense, His words that have been spoken to us, and so as a result, these to be lifted up. And so there they lift up Jesus as the serpent uh, was lifted up, as the bronze serpent was lifted up, that those who look by faith and trust in him by faith and the finished work that was taking place on the cross by looking at the curse, which is exactly what's taking place in Numbers 21, right? The curse was they were sent, God sent snakes to bite them, and so what were they looking at? A snake. So by looking at the snake, the curse itself, that you would be able to look and live. That's what Numbers 21, as a type, tells us. And this is exactly what Jesus picks up on when he begins to tell them in John 3, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then the great verse that everyone knows of John three sixteen, right? And so by looking, you live. Look and live. And so here it is. You're seeing Jesus there. Jesus was crucified, crucified. He was lifted up as the serpent was lifted up. And he was lifted up with two others. One on either side and Jesus between them. So all the pictures that you see, not all the pictures we see at Christmas and, Val- or at Christmas and Easter, uh, we should pay attention to, right? That, that some of the examples that we're given aren't biblical. But here's a very clear, very, very biblical picture that there was going to be three being crucified, two on either side of him, and in the middle would be Jesus. And how is this a fulfillment of Scripture? When Isaiah chapter 53, this the picture of the suffering servant from the Old Testament it says in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Be numbered with the transgressors. And so ultimately, Jesus was numbered with two other rebellious individuals. Now, was he full of sin? Was he a transgressor? Absolutely not. But he was numbered with them in an attempt to fulfill Scripture. And so just in this one verse, you see a topology being fulfilled. You see a direct uh, prophecy being fulfilled from the Old Testament. We've already seen in Jonah chapter 3, uh, or Jonah, uh, in the, the, in the, it would actually be chapter 2, he was in the belly of the great fish three days, but the gospel accounts would tell us the same thing as we're walking through this. Uh, so the passage that we looked at um, in, in verse 17 even is another typology that many people pick up on, an allusion from the Old Testament. 
And it's where the very Son of God, in verse 17 of John 19, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of, the, uh, place of a school, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And so bearing his own cross, many see a, a very uh, similar analogy to what was taking place when uh, Abraham was taking out uh, Isaac, and so he laid the wood of the sacrifice uh, for Isaac uh, to be able to, to that sacrifice was going to be to be Isaac himself, and Isaac carried the very wood upon which he was going to be slayed upon, um, or he perceived to be slayed upon, at least from Abraham's perspective. And this would be a typology of the very son, the, pro- the promised son, bearing his cross or bearing uh, the wood upon which he was going to die. Ultimately, we see in that one. It didn't happen. Isaac did not have to die. It was a test of faith there. But ultimately, we see here the very fulfillment of that in Jesus bearing his cross, having to die. And so you see there are numerous fulfillments of Scripture as we're just looking at this particular passage. John 19, verse 23 and 24. What do we see there? It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. So we know there there's four soldiers that are, are participating in this. And then also his tunic. And so, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And so ultimately uh, we see in the context of this Psalm 22, verse 18, being fulfilled, direct quotation from the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, where at the beginning of Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all throughout Psalm 22 is um, Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference about the very fulfillment of the crucifixion taking place uh, that the other gospel writers will bring into account throughout here. But clearly we see that the soldiers, Roman soldiers who were um, not desiring to participate in the plan of God, not to be able to accomplish uh, the, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. We're absolutely doing that very thing. And so there was four of them. They began to divide his garments. Those garments probably were an outer robe, a belt, sandals, and a head covering. And, and then the fifth item, the tunic. And so they all got a portion of these things as they were uh, casting lots for who would get what. And then they said, hey, there's this fifth one. What should we do with it? So they cast lots for this tunic because it was seamless and woven in one piece and from top to bottom, and they didn't want to destroy it. They didn't want to tear it. And so why should none of us be able to be able to utilize this very nice garment? Let's just cast lots for it and be able to uh, participate. And uh, whoever gets it lands upon them gets to take it home. And so even in this, you see a fulfillment of Scripture. As it was with the thieves on either side of Jesus, as it was with the typology, Jesus being in the grave three days, Jesus being crucified upon a cross, being lifted up, bearing the cross himself, being numbered with the transgressors again and again and again. You have a variety of events leading to the culmination of Jesus down the cross, and all of them unwittingly are participating in the very fulfillment of Scripture, even Roman soldiers who have no idea what they're doing as, as it relates to the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And yet, the glory of God, the glory of Christ, our sovereign God, overseeing all of these events, that even men who will be held culpable and responsible for their actions are participating in the fulfillment of Scripture. As we saw even with the prophecy from Caiaphas back in John chapter 11, where he declared it would be expedient for one man to die and not the whole nation, and he would be able to die for the people. And yet he didn't believe that was a sacrificial atonement for Uh, sin and sinners ultimately he was wanting him to be removed so that he would not lose his post there and they would not lose their power there due to rome and so ultimately 
You, you see these unwitting participants in certain ways carrying out their own win, uh, desires, their own wishes, and yet at the same time fulfilling Scripture. And one more we see in our text this morning is John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. John 19, 28 through 30. We're going to come back to this passage to see it from a different angle as it relates to the fulfillment of Scripture. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, parenthetically, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Right? And so that would be quotation from Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. that he, uh, not directly, but ultimately that he was parched, he was thirsty. And so a jar, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, ultimately, Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one says, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one, And so... They quickly run over to the jar of sour wine and go, hey, I'm fulfilling scripture right now. Look at me. No, there was a jar of sour wine there. And Jesus, in attempts to fulfill scripture uh, and his design to fulfill scripture, uh, completely cognizant, completely aware of what was taking place, completely uh, embracing the wrath of God that was being poured on, poured out on him, even at that moment, is desiring to honor the word of God. Honor the words of God. Even this morning when we were teaching in that elementary class. How important is the word of God to us? We know God because of his word. We have confidence in God because of his word. Jesus completely in every respect fulfills the word and requirements of the law of God. The words of God. He is the word of God that dwelt among us. And so in this men and women, I pray we never become uh, have contempt for what's familiar. And we never disregard what it is as a privilege to have God's word in our language that we can study on our own, free of perversion, free of uh, persecution in the sense of that keeping us from it. We have been granted a great gift that the word of God would be able to be translated in our own language that we could know it and read it, love it, enjoy, and by the spirit of God, being able to understand it and obey it. What a gift from God. And what a gift for us to see that Jesus on the cross, at a time where when pain is inflicted, in my response, I might not respond in the most godly of manners, but Jesus, without a sin nature, without any resemblance of sin, fully at that time desires to honor the Father and honor His Word. And so one of the things we see is the glory of the crucifixion is the fulfillment of Scripture. And I could spend the rest of the sermon... Uh, and, and still not have time. We could spend until 12 noon and still not be able to talk about all the variety of ways that Jesus has fulfilled Scripture uh, directly and indirectly, explicitly and um, uh, in other ways to be able to try to navigate and, and show you all the ways that Jesus is fulfilling both the types and shadows and clearly Scripture directly, uh, direct Scripture passages from the Old Testament where he's fulfilled Scripture that would just show us his glory. But just to keep in the context, we've seen there numerous things just in these last uh, these three scripture passages out of the text that we're in this morning that we can see the very glory of Christ and the glory in the crucifixion itself. So that's the fulfillment of scripture. The second way we see the glory in the crucifixion is the sign. The sign, right? The sign that was given uh, by Pilate, the inscription that was given, the placard that was carried. The, you may not be familiar with this, but ultimately this was a means to shame the individual and a means to warn others. And so as a result of this, what would happen is the, uh, when the guilty verdict was rendered, 
the guilty verdict and what the person was being punished for would then be written on a placard. And ultimately then it would be written in a variety of languages we see here that we see it was an Aramaic, which would be the Judean common language at that time. We would see uh, Latin, which would be the uh, Rome's official language. which would be the Roman language that would be official. But then we also see Greek, which would be Rome's common language, right? So uh, the Grecian kingdom had, uh, had just fallen to the Roman kingdom. And ultimately, as a result of that, you, Greek was known for, Greece was known for great philosophy and, and, um, uh, and art and beauty. And so as a result of this, it had um, permeated the, king, uh, the, the known world at that particular time. And so when Rome came in, it brought... Uh, new rules, new order, new language, but at the same time, that was the common language. Was, was Greeks were even our Koine uh, Greek, which would be the common man's language that we would have, uh, or that was uh, spoken at the time, so that the gospel could be sent out and sent abroad. And so, as a result, all three languages were the, the inscription was listed uh, as a result of that. And so, as it was walking down the street, anyone from any that would know any of those languages, or maybe would know all of those languages, would begin to see the uh, guilty verdict that had been rendered, why this individual was going to the cross. And so either it would be hung around their neck or someone would carry the placard ahead of them and everyone would be able to know this is why this person is going to the cross. So it was to shame the individual as they made their way to, the, to Golgotha, they made their way to the place of the school. And it also gave a way to, to encourage people, don't do that because if you do whatever they did, whatever's listed on this placard, you will be killed for this. And so as a result of this, we already know Jesus was innocent. Pilate had already communicated this on several occasions all throughout. The Gospel of John lists at least three times where Pilate says um, he was innocent. You tie all the Gospel accounts together, some have recorded up to six times, Pilate will have said, Jesus is innocent. I find no guilt in this man. Yet, he's flogged and scourged and led off to crucifixion. We talked about why that was the case and what was what all the, the events that surrounded that. And if you have not had a chance to listen to that, you can listen to the previous sermons and get caught up. But ultimately, we know that he was manipulated in this and was a coward and, and did not heed the warnings that had been given him. And so as a result, we see the sign. And so in verse 19, we see the glory in the crucifixion, even as it relates to this sign. And it says in verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Now, whether or not he did this by his own hand or by his own instruction, someone else penned it, need not worry. The reality is that it came from a direct command from him. And it reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, as you read the other gospel accounts, it may not read exactly like this. And it doesn't mean that there's contradictions. The Bible's not trustworthy. Ultimately, this, this means that it could leave out certain portions, highlight the portions that were of emphasis. It could have to do with the reality of it being in three different languages and the languages being a little different, how they would share things or read things. And so as a result, uh, ultimately, it would read similar to this, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And so many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was just outside the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek, as we told, we've spoken about. And so in verse 20, so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. Don't write that. He's not our king. This is what they've been saying the whole time. We have no king but Caesar. But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And this is what they set forth as a reason to have Jesus killed, right? He was an insurrectionist. There's no king but Caesar. And so therefore, Pilate, if you don't crucify this man, we're going to say you're no friend of Caesar because this man calls himself a king. So it was all manipulation on their part. And so Pilate, not having a, a real reason to crucify Jesus, 
buys this lie, buys the fact that he's an insurrectionist upon which he didn't believe, that his kingdom wasn't of this world. Did he know where Jesus really was from? He knew he was from Nazareth, right? So clearly he even lists that here. Remember the conversation he had? Where are you from? Why did he ask that question? Because his wife had had a dream not to have anything to do with this man. Jesus had said that he was a king of another kingdom, not of this world. If he'd been of this world, his, his people would not have allowed him to be delivered over to Pilate and eventually to him, or to, to Caiaphas and eventually over to him. And ultimately they would have fought for him. But this is not what his kingdom is about. His kingdom is about truth. And so Pilate says, what is truth? As Walks through this, they begin to say, he calls himself the son of God. And now Pilate becomes terrified. What if he is one of the gods? Like polytheistic. What if he's one of, what if he's Zeus or Hermes? Come to dwell with us. And now I've, at this point, already flogged an innocent man. Have him scourged and then eventually have him crucified. He was terrified. So he comes to Jesus, where are you from? And so he knows he's not, an insurrectionist. There's no fear on his part about Jesus creating a coup and trying to take over. He was a good teacher. He had a huge following. He was a miracle worker upon which no one questioned his miracles. And so he says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So it's a double meaning there that's taking place. They say he's an insurrectionist. He calls himself a king and will bow to no one, not even Caesar. And this is why the Jews have delivered him. And so in essence, he's, he's written that. I believe there's more taking place here. As you, we began to wrap up our, our discussion two weeks ago. And they began to uh, call for the, the very blood and the very death of Jesus in John 19, verse 14. It says, now it was the day of the uh, preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Paul said to them, shall I crucify your king? And that's when the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. At this point, Pilate's just hardened. He's going to deliver him to be crucified. He knows he has no option because they've already threatened him with manipulation. If you don't deliver him over, you're no friend of Caesar. And so now it becomes mockery. Here's your king. Here he is. Look at him. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. Look at your mighty king, Israel. Behold your king. Of course, they respond, we have no king but Caesar. And now he's going to poke at them one more time. Hey, your king, the king of the Jews, is about to be crucified. Scourged at this point. Bleeding. Bodies mutilated. Bearing his cross. And all throughout the city, a shame isn't necessarily just shame toward Jesus as an attempt to humiliate the guilty party upon, I say those in quotes. Everyone knows he wasn't guilty of this. But ultimately, it was Pilate's way to poke the Jews. All throughout, he can taunt Israel. He can taunt the Jews and be able to say, your king is going to the cross to be killed by the superpower, which is Rome. And so the Jews don't want that. They, they say, verse 21, do not write the king of the Jews, rather this man said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate, I think, with great joy, says, what I have written, I have written. 
I'm going to, this last few moments, I'm going to allow you to get poked in the eye by your own words. And the irony of their own words causing them disdain was probably sheer pleasure for Pilate. Hey, I'm just saying, I just wrote what you told me was the reason he needed to be crucified. You said he was a king, and he said he was your king, right? The irony here taking place. Well, there's even greater irony. The glory in this was Pilate was right. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth. And even then, you begin to think, you remember when all the way back in John chapter 2, when Jesus began to call his disciples? You remember the interaction from some of the first disciples? Where's he from? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And so you just begin to see the heaping on of this, right? That not only he's a Jew, not only has he uh, been turned over by his own people, not only does he seem weak and, and not powerful, not only does he have any type of people who's going to come to his aid, where is his army? Where is his, his following? Not only has he been beaten, but he's from Nazareth. What good comes from Nazareth? No man from nowhere accomplishing nothing. And yet, here's a man who came from somewhere really important, somewhere not of this world, who created the whole world, who has a name, and that name being Lord of all, upon which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that name. What name? Jesus Christ is Lord. Pilate, Caesar, Caiaphas, Annas. All the Old Testament haters and killers of the prophets. Even to our modern day genocide performers. They will all bow before this king. This Jesus of Nazareth. The king of the Jews. And in that moment, he declared truth. You remember what he said? What is truth? Well, you declared it without even knowing it. Just as we saw in the previous section, the soldiers performing, carrying out very, the very fulfillment of Old Testament passages. The thieves on either side of him, carrying out fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. All unwittingly, all fully responsible for the things, their own acts. And yet, the glory in that is the sign Stated truth. That's the glory in this crucifixion. Don't miss it. This is exactly what John wants you and I to see. The glory of it. Of this very heinous act. This very glory is that God is great. How great is our God. Number three. You see the selfless love of the Savior. The selfless love of the Savior. I've always done things a little different. Uh, we're most preach sermons and uh, kind of fit toward the culture. I have always just tried to just preach the Bible and pick out a text and preach the text. And I remember when I first came to Cherokee many, many years ago, um, there was an expectation you should preach Mother's Day messages and Father's Day messages and graduation ceremony messages and a variety of things. And uh, I just thought, man, we should be learning about Jesus. And so let's just preach about Jesus. And so, But in an attempt to try to Marry both worlds. You know, I wanted to accommodate. Uh, we may have been my very first uh, Mother's Day message. Not, my very first Sunday here as an official pastor was on Mother's Day. 
I think it was the second year I was here on Mother's Day, I preached this passage for Mother's Day, the crucifixion of Jesus, where he takes care of his mother. Uh, and so the focus was on Jesus, not Mary, and how God takes care, of, takes care of widows, and how he takes care of women, and how he took care of his mother. And so uh, I've always had a, uh, a special appreciation and an attraction to this particular passage. And in this, you're going to see the very glory of Christ, as I wanted our church members to see many, many years ago. I want them to, you guys to see it this morning, the selfless love of the Savior. And so straight from uh, moving from the sign and then ultimately the the, the soldiers uh, gambling or, or casting lots for Jesus's clothing, it moves. Why? And it, I don't want you to miss this because I've got my outlines disjointed a little bit as it flows because I wanted to keep these in context. Verse 24 says, um, uh, so they said to one another, let's not tear it, speaking of his tunic, but let's cast lots to see who shall, whose it shall be. This was filled with scripture, which says they divided my garments among them for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And so you come straight from this irony of the soldiers who don't care at all about Jesus, yet fulfilling Scripture, but they have great disdain for Jesus and are completely self-centered, self-absorbed, and selfish. And then yet, you see then on the other side, but the, the, once again, the irony right here, the contrast, but standing by the cross of where Jesus, the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Now, some read those differently, and some would say there's only two people here, and some people say there's three people here. And some people say there's four people here. I agree with the last. I believe there's four, and that's how I read it. Mary, which would be her name. She's not named, but it would be Mary here, the mother, uh, mother of Jesus. And his mother's sister. I believe she's not named because this is John's mother. This is Salome, as we've talked about before. And so the author, the author of the Gospel of John doesn't name himself. He's not going to name himself. He's not going to name his mom. And so he names neither one of them. And so you have mother... Uh, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' mother, his sister, so this would be his aunt, um, Jesus' aunt, the mother of John the Beloved, Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, this would be James uh, Alpheus or James the Lesser, he's one of the twelve, and then ultimately Mary Magdalene. And so there's your, your four. So you've got uh, three ladies named Mary and one not, right? So that's who we have at the cross. And you begin to see those in the other gospel accounts as well. There's a whole host of other women who were there who weren't standing near the cross, but were standing afar off, and eventually I think they joined them uh, as the crucifixion continues to increase. But ultimately here you begin to see those ladies were standing near the cross. And so by standing near the cross was his mother, um, uh, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom, uh, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And so in that, he's looking at Mary, and he's directing her attention to John the Beloved, the disciple whom he just named, the disciple whom he loved. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother, directing his attention not to his mom, Salome, who was there, but to Jesus' mother, biological mother, Mary, and says, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, two things I want us to be able to see here. One is the very selfless love of the Savior. While the pain that was being inflicted physically, all of this, we tie in the other gospel accounts, all the sneers and all the scorn and all the, the heresy being called out. If you're the son of God, come down from that cross. This man said he would destroy the temple and raise it back up in three days. Who is this man? All the, the sneers and jeering that was taking place. And yet... Jesus and all the physical pain that was taking place, all the spiritual pain that was taking place, place, 
Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus at this particular time. And yet Jesus is caring for his mother, his biological mother. He's caring for her, his earthly mother. Woman, behold your son. Now you mothers in this room may be offended by that. Why didn't he call her, you know, whatever affectionate little term he had for her? Why did he, why did he call her woman? Woman. Right? Now we look at that and we think really derogatory things like beer me woman, right? Or other types of ways that we talk about women in a derogatory manner. This is not what's happening here. It's a term of endearment that he means toward her, but ultimately there is a clear separation and has been since the beginning of his ministry. Right? You remember when his mother and and the children, his brothers and sisters came to see him? And when they came to see him, there's a great crowd of people. And they said, hey, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are here. And he looks at his disciples and said, you were my mother. You were my brothers. You were my sisters. It's clear separation that takes, a place, that takes place when Jesus began his ministry to separate himself from Mary. Now, this is interesting. The great links did not just the Gospel of John, but all the Gospel writers take by not magnifying Mary. And yet, the Catholic Church, in a tremendous way has made her co-redemptrix she's now equal with jesus in the means of bringing about redemption to bring about salvation you can pray to mary pray through mary mary wasn't just didn't just give a virgin birth mary was born of a virgin she herself was sinless and there's great heresy has been brought in church that's not founded in scripture not founded at all in Scripture. And yet Jesus honors his mother, cares for this woman, this, his earthly mother, to ensure that she is provided for. And so he brings about the separation. It's about him and his kingdom upon which he's coming to save sinners, right? And so ultimately here we see the selfless love of the Savior. He's there not just to die for her sin, but all who would repent and believe. There's a mission, and she would cry out that ultimately that Jesus came to save. Jesus' name means that he comes to save. It's a version of Joshua, the Lord saves. And so this is what Jesus' earthly name means. And so as we look at this, this is exactly what's taking place. And so he says, behold your woman, behold your son. And uh, the disciple, behold your mother, and he's caring for her. Now, why would he need to care for her in that way? Well, you remember, he's on the cross, dying for being the king of a kingdom upon which no one really understands, except for those who are a part of this, who have been born again. And so ultimately, that indwelling the Holy Spirit hasn't taken place. That will happen at Pentecost, and it will be a great uh, salvation of souls at that particular time. But the vast majority of people were blinded to this. They don't see this. They don't understand this kingdom. They like like uh, Pilate, what is truth? And so they don't they don't yield to it. They don't follow it. They're not engaged in this. And so even Jesus' own brothers and sisters wherever aren't believers at this particular time. They, some will come to faith in him, but ultimately at this particular time, there's not. And we know this to be the case because she's following Jesus. She's with Jesus. She's in his itinerant ministry with him, um, aiding this process. Why she was there at this particular time, it's with him, it's engaged in this process. Why she was there at a variety of times when Jesus was carrying out his ministry. But ultimately... You begin to see in this, this, this process that she would have been with him and needed to be cared for. 
And it was his responsibility as a son to care for his aging mother. Many, most all scholars believe this particular time that Joseph, her husband, is dead. He's not listed. We don't see it after the point where he um, goes at 12 years old. And they go back to the temple to find Jesus. And Jesus is teaching the, uh, the Pharisees at that particular time, the teachers of the law. And so we don't see anything about uh, Joseph. So many believe he is dead. And so as a result... You don't have individuals who know Jesus, who are following Jesus at this particular time, that are also going to care for his mother. She's going to want to follow in his ways. And the brothers and sisters don't believe, so they're not going to be following. And Joseph is gone, and so she has no one to take care of her. And Jesus' selfless act of service and love to her is that while he's even on the cross, experiencing emotional and physical and spiritual pain, he thinks of his mother. And ensures that she's cared for even at that hour. That's the glory of our great God. Number four, you see the satisfying sacrifice. This is one of my favorite parts in this particular passage. And I I hope I can help you to see it and be clear with it uh, and encourage you in this. Verse 28 through 30, and then we're going to see the very last one in verse 30 which is also amazing. The whole passage is great, but this is where I got really, really excited in my own personal study. The satisfying sacrifice uh, in this to see the glory in the crucifixion. Verse 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, parenthetically, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So we've already talked about that, right? He wanted to fulfill scripture. We see, see that, that aspect of it. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Telestai. It's finished. It's accomplished. Paid in full. It's finished. This is the satisfying, not satisfying in the kind of prideful strut that that's satisfaction, but satisfying in the sense of appeasement. It appeased Full, the full requirement of God at that particular moment. God's wrath upon sin is being poured out. And Jesus is drinking every ounce of the cup. The scripture that we've already talked about. To fulfill scripture. Exactly what this is to take. And all that all is now finished. Said to fulfill the scripture. It is finished. Jesus very methodically calculated fully aware of his environment, fully aware of his setting, fully aware of the pain, fully aware of the wrath, fully aware of the jeers, fully aware of everything that's taking place. Earlier, if you, it's not in this particular passage, but in other gospel accounts, it talks about they wanted to give him gall, right? And this would be a means by which it would help to, to uh, deaden the pain in certain ways when they were nailing his, his hands or nailing, nailing his hands and his feet into the cross. And he refused it. And later on, he's going to say he thirsts, and he's going to drink the sour wine to fulfill Scripture, but he's going to refuse the gall. Why would he refuse the gall? Because he didn't want anything to hinder his ability to be in control, his ability to be self-controlled. He wanted to be full awareness of the wrath of God, full awareness of the calculations of who he is and what's taking place at that particular moment. And all of this, he's, he's calculated. He's, I don't know, checking off in that kind of sense, but ultimately he knows the scriptures that need to be fulfilled and he is fulfilling them. Step by step by step 
by step. And the beauty for you and I, and I'm going to read this quote. This I uh, got from John MacArthur, and I, uh, I just loved it. And I was like, I can't say any better than that, so I'm not. I'm going to say what he said. But listen to this. Every requirement of God's righteous law had been satisfied. This is why even in John chapter 2, John chapter 3, where he comes to John uh, the Baptist, not John the Beloved, and wants to be baptized. Why? Because he's going to ask us that we would, when we turn from our sin and place our faith and trust in him, that we would be baptized. And so an attempt so that the, our righteousness, would, uh, would, there would not be any righteousness of our own, but it would all be the righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ is baptized. Why? So that when God looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness in baptism. And yes, do we obey him in physical baptism, water baptism? Absolutely. But the righteous requirement is not our own. The righteous requirement was Jesus because he did it without any trace of sin. Not a bad thought, not a bad motive, all for the glory of his father. And so every requirement of God's righteous law had been satisfied. Also, God's holy wrath against sin has been appeased. That's pouring out his wrath on the sins that you and I would one day commit against him. And that Jesus would pay for those and appease God's just, holy, righteous wrath against rebellion and treason against him. And it was poured out on Jesus and his being poured out on Jesus Jesus at that particular hour. Every prophecy, as we've seen, has been fulfilled Christ's completion of the work of redemption means that nothing needs to be nor can be added to it. Nothing needs to be added nor nothing can be added to it. Salvation then is not a joint effort of God and us, but is entirely a work of God's grace appropriated solely by faith. On the cross, when he said it is finished, he was accomplishing everything you and I would need. Nothing more. So therefore, we can't bring anything to the table. And that, men and women, young and old, is great news. It's great news for us. Because he was the satisfying sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement, that the substitutionary system, sacrificial system, had been a foreshadowing of. He is now the final, the once and for all, Final sacrifice for sin and sinners. And that's why in the book of Hebrews it says, come out. Come out of that system. That's going away. That's, that's obsolete. Why? You don't need sacrifice for sin. That's been accomplished. And the, the it is finished from the cross. The satisfying sacrifice. That's the glory and crucifixion that Jesus was making payment for us. And then lastly... We see the fulfillment of Scripture, the sign, the selfless love of the Savior, the satisfying sacrifice, and then the sovereign Savior. The sovereign Savior. It's also found in verse 30, the last few words that's listed in that verse. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, bonus material for you as I was reading through and following up with the various commentaries I was reading. We say, you know, one of the things you're going to die uh, of uh, potentially could be dehydration, um, blood loss, uh, clearly uh, suffocation. Uh, and so as a result of this, even in this, the statements that Jesus makes from the cross weren't barely audible. Um, 
It was what was interesting when I read many of the commentaries and as it spoke about the words that were used and the very power of the words that were used as it spoke about how he communicated and that he wasn't whispering these words that when he would get this, that he received a sour wine and his, his palate had been um, uh, quenched and he wasn't parched in that particular moment. He's shouting out these things in full control. It is finished. And then these last statements where you see the very sovereign Savior here fully on display. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He died quicker than they thought he was going to die. Crucifixion could last days. Now, they didn't want that to be the case. And so what do you remember seeing happen in the other gospel accounts? They begin to break the knees of the um, prisoners. The other guys being crucified, and that would then expedite suffocation because they couldn't begin to pull themselves up, push up with their legs, and pull themselves up with their arms so they could take a breath. And ultimately, they would uh, exfuciate. They would, they would strangle to death. They would not be able to breathe. And so as a result of that, they would die of suffocation. But Jesus didn't die of suffocation. He gave up his spirit. His own death was a result of him giving up his spirit. And so as a result of this, you see this is the very sovereign Savior in complete control of every aspect of his life, even his own death. And so in this, this is exactly what he told us was going to happen. If you remember John chapter 10, remember the, the, the in John 10 where we begin to walk through the, the good. He says he's the door. He says he's the good shepherd. And in the context of the good shepherd, verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Speaking clearly of the Gentiles here. Which would be you and I. And for this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. So this isn't Caiaphas. This isn't Annas. This isn't the Roman soldiers. This isn't those who are crucifying him. This isn't Pilate. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Sovereign control of the Savior. Yes, he's the Savior that must die as the sheep, as the sacrificial lamb. But they don't kill him. Yeah, they're attempting to, but before they can kill him, He gives up his spirit. Our sovereign God. Now, when you select those five things, and we could go on longer and longer and longer with the sermon, but I just want you to be able to see what I think is the primary points of what John is in this particular portion of Scripture wants us to be able to see. That's glorious. That's so glorious that the things that he wrote in this, even in this particular account, not to mention all the other chapters that we've studied up to this point, all the other 18 chapters, 19 plus, considering we're only in a portion in chapter 19, but this, I believe, is, is for the, the fact that, but these are written. John 19, verse 18 through 30, is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. have life in his name. Did anyone believe? There's a centurion that's going to believe. 
There's a thief on the cross that day who believed. And he didn't start out believing. That's not a contradiction in Scripture either. You begin to read the gospel accounts and tie them all together, and it says they both, both criminals that were walking with Jesus were sneering at him and jeering him and were taunting him. And as you continue on, the, the gospel accounts will tell you that one of them ends up saying that he's an innocent man and ultimately that he, they're being held responsible and accountable for their sins and ultimately ask Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom? What would cause that man to do that? Well, probably one of the other of the seven statements Jesus makes from the cross when they're taunting him and, and attempting to scoff at him. He's crying out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's not natural. And then the very act of one of the most heinous Ways to die. There's glory in the very act itself. Surrounding that very act. And Jesus is the centerpiece. What should we take away from that? One. If our God is in that complete control. Then we can trust him. And two. If we trust in him for what he accomplished at that particular time, and the spirit he grants us, as Tim told us already today, would enable us to be able to cry out, Abba, Father, and give us the assurance that we are in his kingdom. And three, will help us to know how to suffer well when we suffer. The same spirit, it's a part of the Trinity, is what indwells us and enables us to understand, obey, and enjoy the things of God. And four, should encourage us to love him as much as he loved us. That's the glory in the crucifixion. Just think about then, I'm not going to call the band to do this, but it's one of those times where I'm like, let's go back and sing our great God and then move into the medley, how great thou art. That's great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. To show us truly how great you are. How holy, distinct, and different, set apart you are from us. And Lord, we are not in control of anything. Even our best efforts and our own attempts couldn't fulfill Scripture many, many times. And if we fulfill it outwardly, then our hearts may not be where our, our bodies are. Lord, we can sing songs, maybe even did this morning... And our lips draw near to you, and yet our hearts are far from you, it says in the book of Isaiah. That could be me. That could be us this morning. And yet our Savior, your Son, fulfilled in every possible way your holy requirements. Loved you with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved others as himself. Father, we, we give you praise that's due your name and his name this morning. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for dying for us. And I pray that this passage, by the work of your spirit, will be burned into our hearts. Be written in our hearts and our minds. That we continue to come to mind. That would remind us this week when we go through difficulty. Of how good we have it. Of whose we are. Who owns us. 
who cares for us, who encourages us to cast our cares upon Him, upon you, who loves us. And if you would be for us, who could be against us? This conquered death, hell, and the grave, which is our greatest enemy. And would encourage us to love others in the midst of our own walks and journeys of persecution. And so, Lord, we just want to say we love you. I pray for every believer in this room that your spirit would take your word and would encourage the child of God. And for any in this room who have never been saved, I pray today would be the day that you would turn their hearts, regenerate them, Lord, enable them to confess their sin, to repent and believe and to trust you as Lord of all creation. Lord, thank you for all that you do and all that you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.